Deuteronomy chapter 10. We will pick it up here momentarily in verse 11. As you're turning there, I ask you to hear this. Deuteronomy 9 taught us to learn from our past. Deuteronomy 10 teaches us to look to our future. In Deuteronomy 9, God speaks and says, Now that we're going to go in and do the impossible, God, like a consuming fire, will lead us in victory. So be careful, since He's the one who's leading and He's the one who's doing the work, not to take the credit, because this will never be something we'll earn. It is grace. Our history shows us that we have a natural affinity to be stiff-necked or stubborn. Choreb, Teberach, Masa, Kibroth Hata'ava, Kadesh Barnea, places that we have been to, every place we've been to seems to testify of that. Here's the good news, that we really can't do anything but cover the past with the blood of Jesus. Glory to God, we can do that. And though we can't change our future in any other way, we can make a choice about our, our, in our past, we can make a choice about our future. And now it's time to start choosing differently. Deuteronomy 10 tells us, now that we've learned from our past, let's start to embrace our future. Verses 1 through 5, it is time to leave our past mistakes behind, no longer letting them define us, but now let's start over. Verses 6 and 7, let God the Helper take His proper place. Verse 8, once He does, let's embrace the calling He's given us out of that overflow. And then in verses 9 and 10, since that is so, let us see the value of our eternal investments. And now... Verses 11 through 22, the rest of the chapter. If I'm really going to move forward, I should really know what God wants. And that's how this will hinge. It'll say, now, what does the Lord really? And the word we have there for require is the word sha'al. Could you say sha'al? Sha'al means to inquire, to request, inquest, to or by extension make demand. But if I am now going to put the new better me into this brighter future... I better identify what God is looking for and how I define success because the new me should not be defined by any old part of me which included my old priorities and my old view of success. With that in mind then, we take it to the text. Our hinge text, or the one that swings us into the text, is verse 11. Read it with me. Then the Lord said to me, Arise! Begin your journey before the people that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to give to their fathers to, to give them. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of His ways and to love Him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven in the highest Heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth and all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and He chose their generations after them, you above all people as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods, is Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality, nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him. 
And to Him you shall hold fast and take oaths in His name. He is your praise. And He is your God who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Oh, your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons and now the Lord your God has made you as stars of heaven and multitude. Will you pray with me, please? Oh, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, may your word burst open and come alive today. May, Lord, we see you for who you really are and know you better and love you more. And God, captivate us in your word now, I pray. Lord, may we know you, may we love you, may we want you. Let this be the time, Lord, that as we begin this year and we begin to walk through 2015, oh, Lord, consume us that we would disappear and you would appear. And God, if there be any who have yet to know you as their Lord and Savior, let this be the day of their salvation, I pray. Oh God, have your way now, we pray. Lord, immerse me in your spirit that I would disappear and that you would be seen. Fill me to overflowing, Lord God, so that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. Speak to every one of us individually, right where we need to hear you, and corporately, where we as a family today need your voice. So Lord, we commit this to you. Every second is yours. We pray you would bless it. Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say. Now God says it's time to go. It is time now to go in and take the land. It is no longer time to be an observer. It is no longer time to be a spectator. It is time to move forward in faith and take what God has ordained for you. But for that to happen, we should know what the Lord will expect in this new place this new ground He wants to give us. And in this new ground He wants to give us, notice here that there are in essence five distinct things that He tells us in verses 12 and 13. From that point, He will then identify Him by two ways. First of all, what God is and then who God is and then He'll give us a therefore. And then He'll give us a what God is and then who God is and then He'll give us a second therefore. That's the way the chapter rolls. And i got to tell you, most of this information may be familiar, but that doesn't mean it hits us where it needs to. In verse 12, now as well. Though clearly that is a distinct, ordained group of people, God would say the same to you today. Sarah, Sarai, as in struggles or contends or fights with, is the beginning of Sarah El. El is God. Israel means struggles with God. The sad part is we have this natural tendency to fight with the one who loves us, that wants to bless us and only give us a future and a hope, and we want to fight with him because we think somehow we've figured things out in a better way than God would give us. And he turns to these people, much like me, and I would imagine much like you, with a terrible history of stubbornness, a terrible history of self-reliance, a terrible history of making up the rules and assuming God would agree with them because they seem right in my own head. He says, let me tell you what God really wants. And here's the first of them, to walk in wonder. 
The verse here, it says, but to fear the Lord your God. The word for fear is the word ra'ah. Could you say ra'ah? Yes. Now would you say yara? Ra'ah is evil, harm. Ra'ah, yara, yara means to be in wonder or reverence of. This is the word yara. And this is what he asks of us first. God wants his people in awe of him. And I'm sitting and I'm praying about this and I start to ask myself a simple question, where is my awe? My prayer kind of goes like this. You spoke the universe into being. You put the orbits or the planets into orbit and you set the borders of the sea. You hold on everything, every atom, every molecule together with your word. So where is my awe? Your ways are unfathomable. Your voice unstoppable. Strips the forest bare. Your throne eternal. The dominion unconquerable. Your love invincible. Your greatness immeasurable. And yet your plans are only for my good to give me a future and a hope. And I ask, where is my awe? Your thoughts outnumber the sand for me. Your heart only delights in me. Your mouth rejoices over me. Your voice calls me by name. Your eyes span the earth to show yourself strong to me. Your arms, your arms open wide to me. Your hand always outstretched to me. Your ear attentive to the cry of me. Your blood always cleansing me. Your spirit reigniting me. Your love always holding me. And nothing can snatch me from your hand. Where's my awe? The heavens can't contain you. The enemy can't trip you. The world cannot stop you. The grave could not hold you. You are my unconquerable king who works all things to my good. So where's my awe? You are the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the everlasting father, prince of peace, great high priest. And while some men boast, not some or most, but all, and I mean all, mighty, my hope, my life, my peace, my joy, my first love, my, the undefeated heavyweight champion of the universe, and yet you're my father, my love, my ransom, my reward, and my friend. So where is my awe? In the beginning, there was only you, and in the end, there will be just us. No sin, no death, no pain, no suffering, no tears, just us. Where's my awe? And you ask, where were you when the world was made? And I would say in your heart. And when the universe was framed, I would say in your heart. And when you formed man and saw him fall and brokenhearted called, and in all of it I was in your heart. And where were you when you were on the cross? When you cried in grief and sobbed and weep, I was in your heart. And where was I when you stormed hell and demons fell, when the heavens lulled and earth would hear paid in full? I was rescued. I was, I was in your care. And where will I be when this whole thing unravels and the world's end travels? All truth and life meet and, th- and melt in an f- in infinite heat. Well, I'll, I'll be in your arms. That's where I'll be. And when I sit to think of this God who is from beginning everlasting to end everlasting, whose mercy never ends and His truth endures forever, and I think, where is my awe? And I realize I cannot fabricate or form or fester or foster awe. Because I ask myself, what puts me in that state today? And I realize this. For me to truly be in awe, all I have to do is observe honestly. You see, there are certain things that do make me humbled. I mean, make me feel small. 
For instance, seeing a sunrise over the Sea of Galilee when everything is so silent, I can hear my own thoughts. And I can hear the wind under, the, under a tiny bird beside me or under a mud duck as it flies by. And God slashes the sky with neon blades. And I'm in awe. And all I had to do was observe honestly. And when I see genuine, selfless kindness observed in a person in need, and I watch someone reach out with the love of Jesus Christ, I'm in awe. And all I had to do was observe honestly. And when I look in the deep ocean blue eyes of my adopted babushka grandmother, who's 85, who watched her family tortured to death in a death camp, and has grown to forgive every person who has so torturously abused her. I'm in awe. And I don't have to form it or fabricate it or fester it or foster it. All I have to do is observe honestly. And here is my problem. When I am looking for him, I find him. In a row of ants, and the moving of a snake in traffic, in a late bus, in smog, in a city desperate for love, fatherless and friendless, isolated and insulated and afraid to cry out for help. And when I look for him, I see him. And he says, you know what I really want? for you just to honestly look for me. And the Lord says, if you look for me, oh, you'll find me if you look for me with your whole heart. Not just with your pocketbook or not just with your list of demands. And I want to see him. I've had the privilege in the last two weeks of seeing Jesus through a group of 15 people. Every one of them I'm humbled by. And all it did is reminded me of you, the rest of you who didn't go. And I watched those moments of selflessness, of service, where you're not the first thing on your mind. And you're quick to love and you're quick to pray and you're quick to be in His Word. And I think, oh God, I feel so small. And that's a good place to be. It was David who said, when I consider the work of your fingers the sun and the moon and the stars that you have made, I start to wonder, oh man, what is man that you mind of? And the son of man that you give him any time or day at all. Isn't it a beautiful thing when you can feel small and that's so good? And God says, this is what I want. Because the more you get full of yourself and big in your own world, your universe must get really small. And God says, this in the new land is the new person. A one who walks in wonder. And I ask, where is your awe? What are you looking for? You know, I can take my fist and I can, and on a sunny day, those four days a year, I can actually hold it up like this and block out the sun. I can't see it, but does it make my fist bigger than the sun? It just makes it closer. 
And yet I've discovered that all of the nuclear arsenal that we possess on the planet, if we set it off, would amount to less than four seconds of energy that is exuded from our sun. And our sun is one of the smaller stars in our galaxy. It's the runt of the litter. Where's your awe? On this tiny little planet that is orbiting around a sun, that is orbiting around a galaxy, that is orbiting around a universe. And my God sees all of it. And yet in the midst of all of that, calls me and you by name. Should we not be in awe? And then we look after that at our quote-unquote problems. And what do we see? Specks of dust in the hands of a God who can blow them away with a breath. If hell itself was no threat, then why in the world would I think any problem I face could be big in the sight of God? In his vocabulary, lack words like difficult, at least on his perspective. Ours, we see it often. God's never broke a sweat. So why should I be concerned? And if I don't walk in fear of God, I could very well walk in fear of everything else. And that's our first of our five. The second then is to walk in all of His ways. Might I say if the first one is to walk in wonder, the second would be to go onward in obedience. Notice the term walk. Not sit. Not intellectually ascribe or agree. Walking is where the faith is. Your brain may be able to argue doctrine, but your feet will know God's ways. And He tells us not to walk in some of them, but to walk in them all. And I'll be honest, this limits the banner and umbrella of Christendom to a much smaller group. Those that are not going to pick and choose those things we agree with, or those things we may feel that will be easy to us. But the things that we hate the most, we lay before God and see God show Himself the strongest. Forgive our enemies. Pray for those who persecute us. Speak evil against us for God's namesake. To turn the other cheek. I don't have a problem turning the other cheek as long as it's in the midst of a back roundhouse which is a kick, by the way, to someone else's jaw. But to go the extra mile and to turn the other cheek and when someone sues you for one thing, offer them another as well. Who volunteers for that? But in all of that, what I'm doing is I'm giving God space. And I can't say, well, I agree with this thing, but really inside my heart vetoes it because I have no interest in it finding my feet. First and foremost, I start by walking in wonder. And because I walk in wonder, I can move onward in obedience. And all of this, now he gets to, as you've heard it said, that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. 
He says then to love him. Is first I'm called to walk in wonder. Second, I'm called to move onward in obedience. Then might I say the third would be to live out love for him. God really wants me to love him. Find that in another book. How many people run around telling you that Buddha loves you or Muhammad loves you or wants your love in response? I don't want to pick on anyone. I'd rather pick on everyone. Only in Jesus Christ is love truly manifest, demonstrated, and proven. For the greater the sacrifice, the greater the love proven. And no greater sacrifice could be given and no greater love could be given than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. But it goes beyond when it tells us that even when we were enemies, Christ died for us. And I ask, what if we just simply gave God room to do this? Notice it doesn't tell us here first to love everyone else. Because if we tried to do that without loving God, we would not love them selflessly. We would invest, but check the dividend regularly. God says, what I really want is your love. If you saw me for who I really am, then you obeyed me because you saw that I was big enough. I want your love. Then he tells us in the fourth of our five things, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. The fourth would be to serve with surrender. And the problem is almost the, well, the thing that qualifies this statement. To say to walk in God's ways is one thing. To say to walk in all of His ways is another. And to say to serve the Lord your God is one thing. And another thing to say to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Well, that's another But notice in all of this, the word all, that's the point here. What God wants is it all. That's why love has to be in the middle of this sandwich. Now, unless you have some kind of concern for gluten or whatever the case is, some dietary restrictions, most of us identify our sandwich by what's in the middle. I like to tell that when I direct choirs because the altos are often felt forgotten. And I say, oh, it's the middle that you call it, the sandwich. And right in the middle of all five of these is love. That has to be the core, the center of it all. But love to God will look like obedience as our Father. Love will look like service, availability to serve with all my heart and with all my soul. And then finally in verse 13, he tells us to keep the commandments. The word keep here is an interesting word. It's actually not unfamiliar if we were reading this in the Hebrew because the word is shemar. Would you say shemar? Okay, shemar. Let's try that again. Shemar. Thank you. Shemar goes all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 2 when God put the man in the garden to tend and to keep it or to work it and expend his energy and to protect it. The word shemar means to protect, to guard from invasion. 
It's one thing to say, oh, I kept the commandment of God because I did it. That's another thing to say that what I mean by keeping the commandments is to guard the gift of his word because that's what he's telling us here. If I don't see the gift that God's word is, then I will be in an awful lot of trouble when I start making things up myself. And let me just say, if God is perfect and identified that way in Scripture, you cannot improve upon it by what you make up. What you'll probably do is make up somebody who permits more of your sin and vanity, who allows more of your vice, but it would be just the same as saying that I would like to make up my own cure for my disease, but I would really like something that allows some of the disease back in. Seems a bit ironic. But my perfect Savior, Lord and Master, that is the Almighty, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Almighty God, this one has the right to make the rules. Because I was bought at a price and I should glorify Him with it, with this life of mine. And I should render unto Him that which is due Him. Because the one thing made in His image is us. And that's what's to be rendered to Him. And I realize that we live in a world right now where, let's be honest, there are all kinds of groups of people that if they could just prove that they were smarter than God, well then look how smart they must be. And the easiest way to do that is to try to disprove His Word. But it would be like a four-year-old kid trying to disprove math by taking a calculus book and trying to show you how dumb it is. Actually, that's a small case in comparison. Because he doesn't understand math in any given way but the basics. How does such a person then try to step in the ring on areas that seem almost infinite in in regards to their understanding? And a person steps in and says, oh, look at this. And it's almost unbelievable. Actually, in some cases, I am astounded at how hard people work to prove themselves incapable of proving God's word wrong. But the problem is not the unbeliever. God is not speaking to a batch of unbelievers in Deuteronomy 10. He's speaking to his own, and there's the problem. Because it's one thing. I would expect the world not to want to hear the Bible. Sounds like a bunch of rules without a relationship. Who wants that? But what about you? Am I willing to take every word for what it is? And I want to ask you, aside from the quote-unquote experts that have their pie charts and well-designed graphs and illustrations which cannot be proven, Do you believe what you believe because you found it in Scripture or because someone led you and gave you a Scripture at the end of it all to try to justify it? I do want you to know there is no doctrine that I have that came from someone else other than the Lord, in my opinion, but it all came straight from Scripture. When I wanted to figure out how the world was going to end, I didn't go and sit and listen to a bunch of tapes or watch a bunch of videos or read a bunch of books, and I'm not dissing you if that's what you've done. I wanted to make sure I approached things objectively and actually believe what Scripture says. And when you do that, if you try to be honest, one of two things happens. One, your brains explode and ooze out of your ears. I was in that potential. The second is your faith expands. And you realize God may actually be bigger than all of these experts combined. I kind of go with the second. 
And when you sit with some person who shows up and wants to argue over something and they're so determined to prove things and you look at some of the things they bring up and you're like, you know, I just got to be honest with you. I don't see how you could have come up with this just reading this. Have you ever said, saw someone like that? They're like, I know it says, and be always be careful when it says, I know it looks like it says this, but really it means the opposite. And let me give you 15 reasons why. Be careful of that. Because what happens in the end is you feel completely ill-equipped and you get to that point like the Catholic Church had done at one point that said that we need to outlaw the Bible because clearly the common man is not equipped enough to interpret it properly. It was, of course, at that point there are no limits to the doctrines you can start throwing out, the kissing of the Pope's feet, purgatory, the worship of Mary. It's amazing how you can introduce all those things once you remove the Bible. Because at that point, there's no limit to what you can invent. And we can do the same. And we must be careful. If someone pushed you to the wall and said, why do you believe this? Could you lead them to a verse in text? Because in the end of it all, that's my heart's desire. And let me take that a step farther if I could, please. Bible teachers. And that includes me. In our pride, what we'd love to do was come up with something no one's ever heard before. And there are guys like that out there. You can get that, of course. But there's a danger in that. After 2,000 years, if you come up with something brand new, I should be concerned. Now, I'm not talking about application. I'm talking about interpretation of the text. And what happens is we get to this place where you want to teach so that other people go, oh man, I could never do that. Congratulations. We have just, we have just in essence, fostered a fellowship of, of spectators. But what if what we did instead is we humbled ourselves and said what we really want to do is see what it basically says? We might be amazed how many of us should agree on the same text, regardless of where we've come from. If, if first and foremost, could we agree that what God thought was most important, he made the simplest? And if that be the case, could you imagine how many of us, instead of trying to impress people with our knowledge, what we did instead is we opened up Scripture and we just said, what does it say? Not first, what does it mean or that, but what does it basically say? What does it just basically say? For instance, if it said that Jesus 12, 12, chose 12 disciples, we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be able to argue over how many. That should be a pretty simple slam dunk answer. Would you agree? Of course, it won't say that. It'll actually talk about several times where Jesus says disciples more than 12. And many of the disciples will walk away and no longer follow him, says John 6.6.6. So that tells me that there were a lot more than 12 by that point. But it's amazing what happens if we just read the text and say, what does it say? And we go there first. But when we do that, the problem is that we'll be forced to reconcile what is simple and plain. Because a lot of that is pretty heavy. As a matter of fact, that will be the stuff you're like, dang it, I'm not doing this and I should be. Or I am doing this and I shouldn't. But what if that's what we did? What if we, in 2015, just got together, pick a group of people, four or five people, and say, let's just sit together and not even ask, what does it all mean or all that? But first, what does it just basically say? What can we all agree on that, it, the, that, that this word truly just says? 
then you can get to the rest. But at that point, you've already set your healthy boundaries. And this is what God wants. He wants us to guard his word. Guard it from pollution. It tells us in Colossians 2, by the way, verse 8, that we should not be deceived or led astray by the cunning craftiness of people. It tells us they're actually by the vain philosophies of men who do things according to the world, not according to the word. He says, man, there are all kinds of people and the church can be guilty as much or more than anyone of saying, well, let me add a few more things into it and let's just kind of dilute the truth of it. But my heart's desire isn't to do that. I'll have you know that the Lord put me in this really interesting season for whatever, 15, 14, actually I should say whatever it was, 14 days, that we were in Israel. The Lord did not allow me one, like, no matter how much I tried to read, no matter, no matter how much I tried to be like, all right, Lord, let's really dig into the text. The Lord's like, just stop. I want you to pray, and I want you to pray, and I want you to pray. I could not prepare for a single study we had. But there was something so cool about making sure that what we came up with, what was the simple and clear truth, was what was to be simple and clear, and that was it. I went, oh, Lord, forgive me sometimes for losing the forest for the tree. Because this is God says, look, I want to lead you forward, but if I'm going to lead you forward, I want you to do it this way. I want you to walk in wonder. I mean, I want you to have those bright eyes of a, of a child when the first time they see Disneyland, but better. You know, the first time that, you know, I mean, I remember what it was like to leave the neighborhood I came from and to see, a, to see suburbia, which was a very strange place considering the place I was. Everything wasn't spray painted. You know, there was actually this green stuff on the ground outside. It was a really bizarre thing. And I'm like, this is amazing. And God's like, but this isn't the end. This is just this. This is a walkout. And then you go from there and you start moving west and you start seeing expanse and you can start seeing horizons and, and greater ground. And you're like, whoa, this is amazing. And God's like, that's like nothing. It's just a step out. And I showed up in California and I'm like, oh my goodness, what's that yellow thing in the sky? And it was warm. And you could see the infinite expanse of a sea. And God's like, yeah, but that's not yet. He had to take me all the way west to move me east. And then I see your faces and I get it. It's just so much more beautiful. And I want to be that kid to be in wonder. And please, 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 can I just humbly say this as nicely as I can? If you're one of those people that finds a person that's wide-eyed and wondered in Christ and tells them to stop because maturity is otherwise, change or get out. There is no room for that quote-unquote kind of maturity here. We should grow in wonder. We shouldn't be like, well, yeah, I remember when that was kind of the case. I should be more in wonder today than I've ever been. I see him more than I ever have. I spend more time with him than I ever have. I enjoy him more than I ever have. Should I not be more in wonder? And Jesus says, unless I'm willing to accept him with the faith of a child, I shouldn't even make claim to this. That was an entrance level requirement. And then from there to be then onward in obedience. And from there then to live out that love that I claim to have with my mouth with Him. And then to serve Him with complete surrender. And then to guard the gift of His Word. And look at how this proceeds now. Verse 14. 
It is indeed the heaven and the highest of heavens belong to the Lord your God and the earth and all that is in it. Stop. There is this nefarious, wrong teaching that somewhere down the line, Adam owned the earth. And the moment he fell, he gave ownership of the earth to Satan. And some people even want to say that Satan owns this earth. Read this verse again. According to this, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord, my God. And all the earth and everything that is in it belongs to the Lord, my God. All the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof belong to the Lord, my God. Satan is a tenant and he is about to be evicted. He has been served. We do read in 1 John that the earth is under the sway of the wicked one, but all he can do is try to influence with words. This is not his property. Everything else we get in our doctrine, pretty much I might wager to say, and although I'm not a wagering type, but I would guess to say comes from Hollywood. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them. The Lord did not delight to love them one day and not the next. What delighted the Lord and what delights the Lord is to love you. Do you know what it means? When was the last time you delighted in something? And it doesn't even have to be overly spiritual. You had a hummus that was so good you giggled. You found that gelato place and you took that first bite and you went, oh yes, this I remember. Someone calls you on the phone that you've been aching to hear their voice for a long time and And you hear them and you're like, oh, yes. More than pleasantly pleased. More than mildly content. The point where it erupts out of your face and you don't even care. Sing a song from Frozen in front of Lauren and see what happens to her. It is amazing We forget that God has called us to be people who delight. And I want you to never forget your God delights in loving you. That's what he delights in. That's what makes him giggle. That's what puts the smile on his face that nobody can stop. That's the thing that when he gets a chance to do it, it makes his day. Is loving you. That's what it is. It says he delights only in doing that. Find that God in another book. Notice again, remember I said what God is and then who God is and then therefore. The what is that he's the owner. That's verse 14. The who, verse 15. Who is he? He's a God of love. He's love incarnate. God delighted only in your fathers to love them. He chose their descendants after them. You above all people as it is this day. Therefore, here's my response. Well, then open up your hearts. If God delights in loving on you, what are you fighting? What are you protecting your heart from? If God delights in loving you and chooses you for His pleasure, what are you fighting? What is the battle? Are you afraid of being let down? 
Well, the good news is you have an infinite past track record to check God on. What's amazing is how quickly we give our heart to somebody we even know is a loser. But how slowly we'll give it to the one that rightly deserves it. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. And I start to realize from this, a stiff neck is a side of a hardened heart. Did you notice that? And a stiff neck, I remind you, means unsteerable. It means being stubborn to God. Is there anything you've been fighting God on? He's like, confess this, get it over with, do this, leave this, try this, step into this, go here, don't go here, whatever the case is. Is there something God's like, look at? And you're like, yeah, but it's scary and God says, good, then I'll look big there like I should. Remember how it started? Remember the first of those five things? What was it again? To walk in wonder. And if I walk in wonder, should I ever really fear anything else if I'm going to obey Him? I mean, how to get this. He's like, look at if the earth is the Lord's and the heaven and the heaven of heavens and the heaven of heaven of heaven, heaven of heavens is all his. And if all of that is his and yet he delights to love me, well, then why should I fight him? Then let down your walls because it's all his. And if it's all his, that means your heart belongs to him anyways. Why are you fighting it? He paid for it with his own blood. And now we're trying to hold on to it because somehow we're fearful of the deal. Verse 17. For the Lord is God. The Lord your God is God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. He shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. Do you know what he is? He is the thing. He ain't a thing. He is the thing, the deal, the all in all. If there were gods, he would be the one over them. Although there's only one and it's him. There are lords. All that means is bosses. And of all the bosses and kings and magistrates, he's the one over them. Of all the things people can worship and all the things people seek security and safety and guidance and hope in, he is the one over all of them. And he is mighty and he is awesome. And might I say that if you have the the old King Jimmy, you might have it as, well, terrible and awful. Actually, can I just say, I think we need to start taking that word back. How is it that some awe is great, but... When it's full of awe, it's terrible. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, that's awesome. What does that mean? That means it's like a wonderful thing. But if we added more awe to it, now it's awful. Now it's bad. Because God isn't some awe. He should be all awe. He's awful in all of the best ways. He is awfully awesome. How's that? He's infinite. Almighty. All-powerful. All-places. All-knowing. And in all of this, he's all fair. No partiality, no bribe. He administers justice to the fatherless and widow, loves the stranger and gives him clothing. And there's the who. Notice again, he loves. That's the point here. He's fair as a judge. And he looks for the needy. And he has no problem reaching out to them. Aren't you thankful? Ephesians says that we were once aliens, foreigners to the commonwealth of the good things of God. But God in His infinite love did more than just allow us a visa. Dare I use those terms at the moment? He adopted us and made us citizens of not just heaven, but made us children of the King. 
Do you see the difference? We're not just allowed to be citizens. We're adopted by the royalty, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the God of Gods, mighty and awesome. That's who adopted us, and that's what He does. Fatherless, yes. And thus He adopts. Stranger, yes. But that's why He makes citizens. He takes care of them and gives them food and clothing. And therefore, here's our response to that. Love the stranger. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And as we get near to closing this, I've got to tell you, this was a, this, I had to walk this one through for a moment, and I'll tell you why. Contextually, they were about to go and kill everybody in front of them. You're going to go in and take the land. So how do you kill everyone in front of you and love the stranger? That seems a bit paradoxical, don't you agree? So I'm walking this through and going, God, speak to me. And he does. Of course. The people that possess the land Israel is about to possess have sworn allegiance to the enemies of God and have declared their enmity against Him. They have no interest in submitting, nor will. And as a result of that, are going to be dispossessed. How does that play out in my life? How does that play out in your life? Listen. What if we were definitive? Not wishy-washy, spineless, boneless chickens. But we were definitive in our understanding of our walk with Christ. And we had standards. Standards about who we were in Christ. What our household should be like. And we loved the stranger. We loved the stranger to our world. Not by surrendering our world to them. The battle they're about to fight will be a battle with people who are seeking dominion over the God of Israel, not surrender to Him. And I get this. Imagine someone were to come to my door, a distant relative perhaps, and I've had a few of those, so distant it's pretty questionable whether they ever were, and say, you know, I could use a place to stay. As a father, do I not have a right and a responsibility to say, if you're going to stay in this home, there will be rules to be kept. Because this is the way, these are the rules of the house. Is that mean or is that safe? If a person says, I really, really need to stay with you, and you say, well, you can't bring alcohol into this house, and they say, well, that's unfair. I want to bring alcohol in this house. And you say, but you have a choice then, don't you? This house does not allow that. Is it mean if they walk away? Here's the point. Whatever the standards the Lord has given you, we are not to compromise those standards to make friends. We are rather to invite friends or people into our world 
And that's how we befriend the stranger. And can I just say, can I just put it as plainly as I can? We suck at that as church. Not just us. I mean the church at Mass. We're so busy trying to look like the rest of the world, we don't even know who the heck we are anymore. Does that make sense? We don't know what we stand for. We don't know what we, we should take a stand for. So we're so busy getting wishy-washy about it, we're like jellyfish. And we're trying to say, you know what? I'm not going to judge, and I'm not going to preach, and I'm not going to take a stand, and I'm not going to... Sure, you know what? While we're at it, that'd be like a doctor saying, you know what? Come on in, but I'm not really going to tell you what's wrong. Although I'm sure I have the cure, I'm not going to administer anything, because after all, you probably might think I'm holier than thou, or healthier than thou, or whatever. But if I really had a heart to see people well, and I had the means to do so, I would want to see them well. I would want to administer the cure. And so when God says, look at God says, look at I, I still clothe the needy. I reach out and I love the needy. I get it, but please don't miss this. Because we quote half the verse when we go to James. Usually when you're trying to raise money for an orphanage or whatever, and we've been involved in much of that in the times past, where it says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. To care after the widows and orphans in their distress. That's half the sentence. You're aware of that, right? And to keep yourself unpolluted from the world. Oh, we don't want to talk about that second part. Because we'd rather pollute ourselves in the world so that we could care after the widows and orphans. But that's still not pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God. If we're going to do that, we're going to want to actually stay pure. Can I say this way? Cross over, but bring the cross over. If I want to go and reach out to people with the love of Jesus... I want to reach out to people with the love of Jesus. That's the point. So when God says, love the stranger, I get it. Someone that's willing to come in. As a matter of fact, God will even speak about that in regards to the Moabites not being a part of the whole, you know, the assembly for the 10th generation. And yet, a Moabite will come in and she will actually say, your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your God will be my God. And she went to becoming the grandmother of great-grandmother of King David. We know her as Ruth. You know, family goes east, gets a girl, brings her back, introduces her to her Savior, her Redeemer. That's what we call our girl, Ruth. We went east, brought a girl back, introduced her to her Redeemer. If you had a clear understanding, if I had a clear understanding of what the standard is that God calls me to. Then I could be easier to approach the stranger and say, I'd like to invite you into my world. Because whether you know or not, if you don't, they will invite you into theirs. But that is to your destruction. So, therefore love the stranger. You were strangers in the land of Egypt. Notice what he goes back to in verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. We start it that way, we close it up that way. Why? Because if we can't be in awe of him, we'll do none of this. We'll be too busy fearing other things. So serve him. And to him you shall hold fast. The word means to cling. You know when a challenge comes, it's the time to cling. When the blessings flow, it's the time to cling. Take oaths in his name. You say, but Jesus told us not to take oaths. The point was not to take an oath. The point was that an oath traditionally was what was to solve the end of it all. People would say things like, I swear on my mother's grave or those kind of things. 
And the idea of it somehow is that your word was so worth little that you had to sort of back it up with some form of verbal collateral. Stick a needle in my eye, that kind of thing. The idea of it is let God be the thing that actually validates what you say. He's the end all of the argument. And this is how the chapter ends. He's your praise. Could you imagine if that's really, if we really grabbed a hold of that? That my praise is not how awesome I am or even how awesome you are. You know why you guys are awesome? Because of him. I know this much, and you didn't even have to tell me. You guys would be dirty, rotten, nasty scoundrels just like me had it not been for the love of Jesus. And the good news is, the things we look at and go, wow, that's awesome. That's Christ living in you, shining and radiating through you. And I'd say, turn it up and bring it on. Listen, he's your praise and he's your God. He's done these great and awesome things in which your eyes have seen. You guys entered into Egypt. You guys are only 70 people and now look at you. Hey, you know what? In an area where the average church is 15 people, and that doesn't mean anything. Let's face it. If we wanted numbers, we'd, oper- we'd offer free beer at the door. We'd have a full house. But I look and it's more than just this. And I look around and I see the world being touched. Didn't we just send someone to Africa? And I think, what do you think the Lord's doing through Anita right now? And I think, what do you think the Lord's doing in Uzbekistan right now? Some of you have been around long enough to remember that one. And I look and I think, oh God, how good you are. And I think we're on the precipice of something amazing here, beloved, and I'm sincere to tell you that. I think we're about to watch something explode people being touched, lives touched. Think about how many of you, just go back for a moment and think where you were at the beginning of 2014. That's just a year ago. Do you see anything different? Man, we've come a long way and it was just a year. We just moved here. We knew no one. And it isn't us. He's the great and mighty awesome one. And that's what Moses says here, right? He says, look at the great things he's done. Do you remember, some of you, do you remember when you first came to this country and you were trying to figure out life and hoping you could have a friend? Look at the family you have now. Is it crazy? Yeah, crazy awesome. How can I not walk in wonder when I have constant reminders around me unless I'm choosing to close my eyes or stare at a problem like looking for the wind and the waves in a storm instead of the one who's still above them. Listen, beloved, we're going to go to prayer now. And as we go to prayer, I want to ask something. Do you need a new eye exam? Some vision correction? You having a problem with the walk? You know, it's hard to walk well if you're not looking right. If you're not looking in the right place, stare behind you and see how quickly you can run. And how long that lasts. Are we really willing to give God our heart? When God defines love, he sent his son to die on a cross because he'd rather die than live without us. And to pay it all. 
just so that we could be his. Could you question that? Have you accepted that gift? That's where this starts. His death on the cross, his resurrection to offer us new life. Have you accepted that gift? Because it is a gift and you'll never earn it. Because if you could earn it, how could it be a gift at all? But if you have said yes to Jesus, it's time to start getting up and doing it. Opening his word and letting God teach through you. I discovered there are a couple of people that were in our group that I never knew were evangelists. We had some of the most amazing moments. But part of it, all I had the privilege, to be honest, part of it was just that I had the privilege of spending a couple of weeks with some people and basically those poor souls had to, to hang out with me for two weeks straight or whatever. I mean, but I got to be in their lives and because I got to be in their lives, I got to see God do stuff. And I got to see what he does in people that may seem so natural to them or supernaturally natural that they might not even notice. I'm like, oh my goodness, every time that girl turns around, she's sharing Jesus. And to be honest, all it was is that her eyes were on him and she was plugged in. I'd like to challenge you to do that with me. Will you pray with me, please? So here we are, Lord. January 2015. And we've turned our hearts to you. We've turned our minds and our attention to you for you to speak to us. And you've spoken. And in your word, you've asked, you've said now, what do you require? For us to move forward, for us to take the ground, what must we do? And you told us to walk in wonder. And Lord, again, we can't foster it or fester it or fabricate it, but we can focus on you. In such a way, Lord, that we would actually find ourselves in awe. So, Lord, forgive us for when our eyes are on the waves and on the wind and on the problems and on the burdens and on the, the minutia of life and not on the God who is infinite because it sure makes our world seem small. Forgive us, Lord, for where we may have moved onward in obedience, but not in total obedience. Where we've picked and, cho- and chose your commandments those things that we thought were agreeable with us, but not those things that were the hard choices. And Lord, I know that all that demonstrates is that we're really not loving you like we should. So Lord, please today, for each of us, lead us to love. May we live out that love to you. And by doing so, you'll use us to love others. That's clear. And Lord, as that is the case, do pray, Lord, that we would be people who genuinely seek to serve you with complete surrender, Lord, not keeping score, but rather, Lord, to serve you because we recognize it's a privilege. Lord, to be used by you to affect eternity is something none of us could deserve. And I just want to thank you, Lord, because there is not a person in here I could deserve even to share with for a moment. God, you've given us such gifts here. May we never see any moment of that as an obligation, but rather as an opportunity. And with that, Lord, I do pray that we would guard the gift of your word. We would guard it in such a way, Lord, that we would seek to just let your word say what it says, 
And if we don't understand it, we could just chalk it up to faith and say, Lord, if you want, you can show it to me later. And if not, I'm just going to take that which I do understand and seek to live it out. And because everything is yours, God, and because you delight and delight only in loving me, well then, God, please rip open my heart and may it be completely yours. Let there be no stiff-neckedness here. But rather, Lord, flexible to your will and open to your call. And because, Lord, you love the stranger, I pray for this fellowship and the church and mass that you help us to define, Lord, by your word, define us. By your Son, define us. By the cross, define us. And give us such a standard, Lord, like Nehemiah. The wall, Lord, that would clearly separate, but the gates that would clearly allow in if they're willing to go through the gate. Jesus, you made clear you are the gate to the sheep and anyone who tries to get in any other way is a thief and a robber. You made clear there was only one way. And so, Lord, give us the chutzpah, the spine, the boldness, the confidence in you to set a standard, Lord, that we could invite others into that standard and if they're willing, Lord, to walk, Lord, that, that we would be willing to welcome. And for those that have no interest, but rather would rather defy and fight and seek to tear down the walls you've built for our own safety, Lord, give us the wisdom to back away out of love for you and wonder and awe of you. And so, Lord, I pray today that you lead us forward. And if there be any or many who have yet to say yes to the gift of Jesus, who died on the cross for their sins, was buried, rose again on the third day, just like Scripture promised, and now offers them a new life, a life of forgiveness where their past would be washed away, where they can walk with you now and and intimacy with you. And if that's you, I'm going to pray a prayer I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to say a confident and resounding Amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that be my prayer now. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God, I call out to you as a sinner, just like the rest of the world. I'm broken. I'm faulty. I'm filthy. But that doesn't scare you. That doesn't intimidate you. You sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins and raise again. And I believe that. And I'll take that gift now. I'll accept that gift now. Confessing Jesus as my Savior, but also in accepting that gift, I confess Jesus as my Lord. So here I am, I'm yours. I surrender to you, Lord, and say, here's my life, it's yours now. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen. And so, Lord, now I pray as we prepare to leave here that we would walk in wonder. We'd move onward in obedience, Lord, just as you call us to. And we'd live out that love, Lord. That we would live out that love, serving selflessly and with surrender and guarding the gift of your word. Lord, let that be our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.